This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the award-winning Harvard historian Jill Lepore about her new book, These Truths, A History of the United States. It's a wonderful book, Jill, as enlightening as it is timely. The Senate today is voting on the confirmation to the Supreme Court of Judge Brett Kavanaugh. And what's at issue is the American experiment with these truths enumerated in the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among them liberty, life, and the pursuit of happiness. Your book asks how the course of American history from 1492 to the present aligns or doesn't align with its founding truths. You give us a long book, 932 pages, all of them readable, (laughs) wonderfully readable, a narrative history the likes of which hasn't been published in this country for a long time, meant to double as an old-fashioned civics book. Maybe you can begin with the issue of the New York Packet for October 30th, 1787. Sure. Uh, I chose to start the book with the story of that issue of that lovely little newspaper, the New York Packet, because it encapsulates the ambition of the book, really, which is to transport us back in time and fully reckon with the archival historical record and its richness and its fullness in its complexity, the beauty and the tragedy. So in that issue of the New York Packet, uh, beautiful little four-page, two-sheet newspaper, there are a number of things that you find all glommed together, higgledy-piggledy like those 18th century newspapers always were. On the one hand, there's on the front page an advertisement for a new almanac. It's the kind of getting close to the end of the year. The printers are selling an almanac for the new year, 1788, with all the things farmers would want to know. But you can buy that almanac with or without a copy of the new Constitution, which is hot off the presses, just uh, been finalized in Philadelphia a few weeks before. Americans were, you know, eager to read it and weigh in on the debate about ratification. And then also in that issue of the New York Packet is the first of the Federalist Papers, Federalist Number 1, published anonymously, of course, but was written by Alexander Hamilton, in which Hamilton asks the question, that in my mind really is the question of American history. He says, you know, it has fallen to the people of the United States to decide this important question, whether people can live uh, according to reason and choice or whether they are fated, like all other peoples in the history of the world, to live according to accident and force, and that this is the Constitution that Americans should ratify in order to try to answer that question. And just on the next page of the issue, of the same issue of the New York Packet, is an advertisement for... A Negro wench, is the advertisement would have said, for sale with a six-month-old male infant who's still nursing at her breast. You can go to the printer shop, the same printer shop, but you can pick up your new copy of the Constitution and make a bid to buy a piece of human property. So I start there because the, all the beauty and the tragedy of American history can be found in those four pages of a single issue of a New York City newspaper. 
the Constitution, the letter from Hamilton, and the advertisement for a Negro wench with a nursing baby. And that contradiction is still with us. It is absolutely still with us. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is that people are, I think, continually, continually remarking on the suddenness of social movements or forms of political protest. Or, you know, people think, Black Lives Matter came out of nowhere. <laughs> Black Lives Matter doesn't come out of nowhere. Or the Me Too movement. It's a watershed moment. Nothing like it has ever been. Me, the Me Too movement doesn't come out of nowhere. We have a very limited sense of the past. We live in a kind of prison of the present. And that Hamilton, Federalist One, Constitution, slave ad, juxtaposition is a way, was my way of trying to jostle the reader uh, into the kind of reality of the lived past, its similarities and its differences, its distance in time from us, and also its nearness morally. Yes, and you, you, you go through the, I mean, the history of the United States is a history of contradiction, conquest, sovereignty, tyranny, freedom. I mean, that everything is in play almost all the time. Yeah, and what's tricky about doing that narratively is that a lot of historical work in that's written for the public is pretty polemical and didactic, and yes. it'll be kind of one or the other. So there'll either be a book of sort of American triumphalism, yeah. the greatness of the American experiment, or there'll be a book about kind of the litany of American atrocities. Right. And they map ideologically on to kind of extreme partisan positions, but neither of them is a true accounting, and right. neither of them is actually very useful. I mean, they each advance a political agenda, but they do nothing in terms of fostering a civic spirit or engagement with the past at the level of evidence and reasoning and inquiry. So I was trying to reject the sort of America's horrible, America's great model of the American past and try to ask the reader kind of undertake a journey with me as an investigation into that complexity to just – it's an uneasy path, but to just hold to that path the whole way through. But but that's what's so wonderful about it because you give us what what uh, I think Eric Foner called a usable past. I mean, the trouble with the polemical histories are that the uh, they are not complex, ambiguous. I mean, it, it. What can I learn from it? You you ask the question in somewhere in the book. Uh, what does history teach? And what does history teach? I think history mostly teaches humility. I, I think the idea that we sit in a position of moral superiority over the dead is bizarre. Uh, I think wrestling with the past and watching people wrestle with the moral and ethical and political complexities of their own day is quite chastening. I think chastening is a useful experience. <laughs> yes. And, well, the founders, I mean, the, or the framers, I mean, they were all students of history. I mean, they, I mean, they find their ideas, and, you know, ancient authors and authors of the 18th century, Enlightenment, and 17th century, and the you know the Holy Bible. I mean, they are. I mean, they exploit the resources of history as. Uh, actively as as some other Americans exploit the wilderness. Absolutely. They, you know, Benjamin Franklin 
writes about he takes takes notes on his readings on history from the very young man. Madison is forever buying books, collecting works of political history as well as political philosophy. What they're really trying to do is to examine they they they're empiricists, they're enlightenment empiricists, and they believe the historical record is a body of evidence that can be consulted the way uh, a natural scientist, a natural philosopher yeah. might conduct experiments. Here's all the experiments in the history of government exist and can be consulted and conferred with. So you design, if you're going to design a new experiment, you want to learn from the lessons of the past. So we happen to be at a moment now, you know, as you said in your opening remarks, in which there's a lot of reason to really be concerned about the sustainability of our form of government. And instead of looking to the past or trying to understand turns in American history or in the history of other countries that might inform some good decision-making and a kind of reckoning with what might structurally be going on, we just kind of look around the horizon and try to find people to blame. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, and it's just it's just not instru- it's just not instructive, and it's really not in the spirit, frankly, of a republican form of government in which we are actually supposed to be collectively dedicated to a continuing inquiry into: Is this system of government actually working? Is is it meeting the objectives of a government that is meant to make it possible for us to live justly and as equals according to uh, the exercise of reason and choice and not uh, to the experience of accident and force? That is, Hamilton's question is one we are actually supposed to be asking as citizens, each of us, all the time. And and that's the way the, the, the framers thought of the Constitution. I mean, it was a, uh, an attempt at a more perfect union. And it was an ongoing proposition. I mean, one was expected to to tinker with it. I mean, it's a joining of an organism and a mechanism. It's trying to balance a democratic society that puts a premium on equality with a capitalist economy that doesn't. But it requires constant attention. And it has been constantly reshaped and reformed. It isn't written in stone. It's not engraved in uh, in metal. It, it is a parchment barrier, uh, as Madison called it, and it is inadequate. I mean, it it uh, obviously it sanctioned slavery. It's it's, it's just the fatal flaw of the document that led to you know seven hundred fifty thousand deaths in the Civil War and to the endurance and suffering of millions of enslaved people for decades after its ratification. The Constitution also has no concept of the idea that women exist in public life. It is an agreement among men to govern, to to consent to be governed. Uh, it is the reign of men over women remains in the private sphere. So there are ways in which the Constitution from its start includes, uh, you know, both its tremendous promise, but also, uh, you know, is 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 blinded to the forms of inequality that we pay so much attention to now and have struggled to amend the Constitution in ways that make it possible to address those limitations in its original blind spots uh, and uh, to struggle over the meaning of the Constitution. You talk about, again, I mean, speaking about women, and the, uh, you talk about the first half of the 19th century and what was called the Second Great Awakening, a religious revival in in the country. And and women are very prominent in in that movement and they're very prominent in 
refashioning the idea of uh, a republic, which is the one the founders had in mind, toward a democracy, which is the one that, and, and, and this is, I mean, you have some marvelous, I can't remember them, but it may, maybe you can quote, there, there, there's a wonderful black woman in Boston who, who truly eloquent, yeah, I mean, and this is early. This yeah. is 1830. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's so fascinating to look at how women respond to being left out of the Constitution, to being left out of pu the public sphere of public uh, uh, of the of the new republic. And I, when I was working on the book, I tried to choose characters who could embody whole movements or whole strains of thought. And I chose this woman, Maria Stewart. Uh, who's born free in New York in, I think, 1804. And in the 1820s, she's born again, uh, swept up in this evangelical revival known as the Second Great Awakening, as were many women, more women than men, and as were many free blacks. Maria Stewart is a free black woman who married a free black man in Boston. And she uh, took that spirit of evangelical Christianity and applied it to her reading of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Yes, right. It's the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence in 1826. It's the Jubilee. It's, a, it's much celebrated. There's a lot of attention to the Declaration of Independence in, in 1826. And Maria Stewart is one of many evangelical Christians who insists on taking you know the the we uh, the equality that Jefferson talks about in the Declaration of Independence. She takes it in as this Christian equality of all souls in the eyes of God, men and women, male and female, black and white, all peoples are equal in the eyes of God. And that is how she reads the Declaration of Independence. And therefore, black women are equal to all other people. And she insists that in addition to being equal, she has a right and an obligation, in fact, to make that clear to her fellow citizens. And she marches down to the, to the offices of the Liberator, William Lloyd Garrison's newspaper, and, you know, walks into the printing room and says to him, he's the editor of the paper, I would like to write for your newspaper. I have things to say. He creates this little ladies department for her, but she writes these incredibly compelling essays about equal rights for, about abolition, calling for an immediate, she's a radical abolitionist, uh, and about women's equal rights. And it, she's the first woman in the United States to speak before what's called a mixed audience, that is an audience of both men and women. It was considered not polite for a woman to speak to men in public, uh, and it also speaks to an audience of both, uh, of both blacks and whites. This is quite a stunning, radical woman. And she then is essentially, in the middle of the 1830s, kind of shut up. I mean, she's, she becomes, she's considered kind of too radical. And the only reason we know as much about her as we do, I mean, her, obviously her essays were published and those survive, but her husband had served in the War of 1812 as a sailor. And after he dies, she files an application for a pension as a, as a veteran's widow. And William Lloyd Garrison writes a statement. She needs like a character witness to say, you know, I know this person. I can say this is indeed Maria Stewart. She was indeed married to James Stewart. Uh, and she's a very deserving widow. And he tells the story about the day that she showed up at the office of the Liberator, which allows me, you know, decades and decades later to, to yeah. animate her on a page, which is really, really important because we don't know enough about women like her. She just happens to be, kind of survive as a character because Garrison had to write this kind of character testament about her. But she illuminates so much about reform, about women's women's use of their moral authority, 
uh, to make political demands upon men while themselves denied the right to participate politically, which prefigures so much in later American history. What are some of the other characters that you concentrated on because they were emblematic of something larger? Yeah, I I mean, there are a lot of people. There's a a very long list, and people I was really fascinated by, Polly Murray, uh, another black woman, incredibly important legal mind, uh, much overshadowed in, you know, as a kind of legal theorist of the civil rights movement in the 20th century by our reading of Thurgood Marshall, whom I also spend a lot of time with. Uh, there, there are actually a lot of women who I just think haven't really, really affected American political and legal history and really need to be in any proper chronicle. Yeah, but Mary, you're not picking them for, for that reason. I mean, you're, pick, you're picking them as individuals. You're not picking them I yeah, mean, but I mean, they're not—they're s- not—they're not—they're not just sort of your average person. They're people who no, had a no, huge influence. I mean. yeah. yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Um, you know, the commitment of the social historian is to pick an ordinary person and, and excavate their lives yeah. to tell us about ordinary people's yeah. experience. And I—I I appreciate that. But this book is a political history. Yeah. So the figures I'm going to concentrate have right. to reveal something deep and meaningful about our political and constitutional arrangements. So I spent a lot of time with this woman, Mary E. Lee, who was a really important populist orator uh, in the late 19th century. And then I I spend time with people that I uh, that are better known, but that I myself got to know better in working on the book. Like William Jennings Bryan is someone I just became completely fascinated by. Uh, really changed my mind about him. Super interested in him. Um, a lot of people involved in technological change uh, get little profiles here. Since the strong theme of the book is the importance of tracing how technologies of communication reshape our political arrangements. Talk about that, because that's one of the themes that runs in and out of your narrative, technology, communication, machines. Yeah. I mean, machines, I mean, the first uh, factories in the United States are not uh, housed in textile mills in Massachusetts. They're in the form of slave labor in the cotton and sugar fields in, in the South. I mean, and yeah. they, but they're regarded as, as machinery. Yeah. I, I, you know, there's been some just incredibly rich scholarship on uh, the economics of slavery, the political economy of slavery, the physical experience of slavery. And one of the insights of that scholarship has been that people at the time really did understand what slavery was, was making the human body into a machine. And it's not the machinery of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, it is, it's, a, it's a very different economic system, but it prefigures and, in fact, arises simultaneously with capitalism. And that this is a you know, long body of scholarship that asks us to think about slavery in relationship to capitalism and, and their kind of mutually constitutive history. So I, I, I do a lot of that. I think for the most part, when I talk about machinery in this in this book, I'm talking about technology of communication because I wanted to offer to the reader who's sort of puzzled and thinks that, you know, Facebook or Cambridge Analytica or Twitter are the first time ever that technology changed our, or challenged our political order. That's, of course, not the case at all, but if we, we ought to be thinking critically and um, trying to come up with solutions for dealing with the problems that social media have introduced to our political arrangements. But to do that, we need a backstory for it. So I start really, the book like has a little disquisition on the emergence of writing (laughs) in three parts of the world in three different moments in time. I talk about what the printing press does to authority, how we understand the printing press in relationship to the Reformation, 
uh, and later in reference to challenges to, to monarchy, what the difference between a weekly newspaper is like that New York packet, which was when there were only weekly papers, and the daily penny press of the 1830s during the age of the democratization of American politics, how the telegraph reshaped a country that was really committed to the idea of continental expansion, what having a system of communication that could stretch across far distances means, what the radio means to American democracy, what TV and then cable television. So I pause at each of these in order to situate properly when I get to sort of the mainframe computer and the personal computer, the early internet and social media, that they are part of a continuous long history, that they may be exceptionally challenging in our moment today, but that there's something to be gained by the insight of looking at how other moments dealt with those similar challenges. Well, I mean, that's McLuhan's book, you remember, The Understanding Media, published in 64, and he says that uh, we're living in a world of, with the electronic media of which we have no experience whatever. I mean, the uh, and the change in means of communication overturns a system of political feeling and thought. Mm-hmm. And, and in his view, print is... Uh, marches more or less in a straight line and and there's a form of argument there's a story to a beginning a middle and an end but the electronic media tend to go around in circles mm-hmm. and the uh, and that's part of the problem we have now right i mean i mean you, your your last section of the book is america disrupted and the um, a lot of the dis- disruption you 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 uh, assign to the various means of communication. Yeah, I think what I try to do near the end of the book is to explain how our current hyperpolarized politics was built by hand, built manually in the 1970s and 1980s by political consultants and campaigns that wanted to make the two parties more ideologically driven and to divide them across a deeper political chasm and to get voters out by uh, promoting a highly emotional style of of partisan politicking. That was done by hand, but it happens that just as soon as that was built, the Internet was open to commercial traffic, and not long after that, social media emerged. And so that our hyperpolarized politics today is not actually done by hand. It is done by machine. It is an automated political divide, it's very difficult, therefore, to figure out how to get out of that. Other instances of technological advance that produce political disequilibrium write themselves. There's a kind of the equilibrium is found again. Usually what happens when there's a new technology of communications that like accelerates communication and allows communication over vaster distances, it tends to grant new powers to the people, broadly speaking, or to include more people within the body of the people, as against the political authority of elites, of party elites in our case, in the case of the United States. But the party elites gain, regain power <laughs> after a little while. They kind of catch back up. And the party system will have been altered by that phenomenon, uh, by that dis- disequilibrium, but the system, there's a new system, and it's, it reaches equilibrium. We're not reaching equilibrium. <laughs> You keep kind of descending into yeah, more yeah. disequilibrium. That's what I think so terrifying about this moment. It's not quite clear how it gets undone. 
Right, and and no matter whatever, to go back to the Kavanaugh question, I mean, what, whatever the judgment is, I mean, whether he's confirmed or not confirmed, uh, it will be divisive. It's fascinating to watch the television coverage where everyone's trying to sort of game, right, who's going to be a win for, depending on how it turns out. It's just quite clear, isn't it, that it's a loss for everybody? Yes. I mean, it's just a loss for the country. There's just right. no two ways about it. I don't, I mean, who... Yeah, at some level, like, who cares who's going to win the midterms? The Supreme Court is really important, and we've screwed it up. Like, that is everyone's loss. And that that, that there aren't kind of public servants out there saying that and lamenting that is, I think, quite terrifying. I mean, the real – the Kavanaugh story represents, to me, the intersection of two very different histories. One is – the growing crisis about the Supreme Court and the other is the failure to come up with any political settlement involving equal rights for women. Yeah. It's like a long time failure. But And so everyone wants to talk about the political settlement for women, but in a kind of short term way. But the Supreme Court situation, I mean, objectively speaking, what we have done with this debate is concede with almost no frank discussion that we think Twitter should decide who is on the Supreme Court. It's sort of like a radical plebiscite sort of model, um, except that it disenfranchises nearly all of us because most Americans are not on Twitter. Don't follow Twitter. Like the people, <laughs> it, the Twitter does not is not a an organ, a political organ of representation. It is a political amplification of craziness. So, when you think about just the history of the Supreme Court in that process, I mean, originally at the Constitutional Convention, the Senate was supposed to just decide. And at the last minute, the sort of, oh, the president would give names to the Senate and the Senate would advise. And for most of the 19th century, when the president named an appointee, the Senate didn't even form a judiciary, didn't bring it to the Judiciary Committee. It just went to the Senate. The Senate just voted up or down and they often voted down, but it was a kind of a straightforward matter. Not until 1925 did a nominee even come before the Judiciary Committee, and it was only because it was Harlan Stone who'd been charged, who was suspected of criminal conduct in the Teapot Dome scandal, and he kind of had to go and say, no, I didn't really commit a crime. And the next guy isn't until Felix Frankfurter in 1939, and he only goes because, with somewhat with great reluctance, to answer charges that he was a communist in the 1920s. And he goes, and he's like, I'm not going to answer any questions to your people. Like, my record stands for stuff. Like, I, I, I intend to be a if I'm going to be a justice of the Supreme Court, my uh, I should be essentially anonymous to the American people. This is not a legislative matter at some level. Um, and it's not until 1955 that it's with any regularity, Supreme Court justices even appear before that committee and then to only answer very narrow questions. So, uh, you know, it's obviously it's post-Bork and post-Clarence Thomas that we somehow uh, have acceded to this notion that the purpose of the Senate Judiciary Committees is for the American people to sit in spectatorship like we're in a Roman Coliseum and we have people who vote like a lion against the Christian and they're going to battle it out and we're just going to watch the blood and the gore and we're going to, you know, do thumbs up or thumbs down. I mean, it's a kind of a grotesque spectacle. Well, yeah, but it goes right to the the question about truth. I mean, is truth, I mean, for the founders, I mean, if I read it correctly, truth is passion, and for our current generation, passion is truth. I mean, I mean, is 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 are the passions subservients of reason, or is reason the servant 
of the passions. I mean, truth is what you know or what you feel. I mean, I mean, isn't that the kind of problem that that is presented by Twitter? I mean, it becomes emotion instead of reason. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a deep piece of that, but I also, I guess, I do think there remains the structural problem, the supposition that it what we are what this process should be is that we should all collectively be watching. Yes. I mean, I think it was a disgrace to ask Christine Blasey Ford to appear before the Senate Judiciary Committee and before the entire American people on live television. I think it was a disgrace. I think it was profoundly unfair to a private citizen of this country. I just yeah. I just disagree with that. Uh, and it has all the hallmarks of the medieval trial by ordeal. I mean, our commitment, our notions of truth derive ultimately from the idea of trial by jury, in yes. which a battle of, uh, we, we, we serve as jurors who with specific instructions and rules of evidence uh, witness a battle of facts in which adversaries take turns presenting facts to us. And we use our reason and our judgment and our, we consult on one another as a jury to decide the truth of the matter, that we, fi we find the fact. That is where our mo that deep, in a deep way. That is where our model of truth comes from. It's where Jefferson's model of truth comes from. It's where Franklin, as a printer's notion of the freedom of the press, comes from. That we must truth and error will have a battle, and we will decide. And we, using our judgment, our capacity yeah, right. for reason, Ju reason judgment, will decide. That was the trial by jury replaced the trial by ordeal, yeah. in which you you know two people would fight it out, and the person that was left alive at the end of it was innocent because God had decreed that that was the, that's how God was the only one who could judge guilt or innocence. Man wasn't capable of that, and that's it's you know it's this very medieval notion of where truth comes from. This Kavanaugh. Ford thing, it is trial by ordeal. It is not a trial by jury. The Senate has an obligation to weigh the evidence and make a decision. Uh, do not ask for us to be part of a grotesque spectacle of watching two people destroy one another. But it does make good television. It makes good television. Um, it makes good television. I think it no, probably but I mean, I absolutely makes agree everybody with, who yeah. watched it feel bad about watching it. I mean, I hope yes, people had the decency yeah. to feel bad about watching it. History, at one point you raised the question, is history a, a line or a circle? How do, how, do you, <laughs> how do you answer your own question? I think, you know, I mean, that is the great commitment of the Enlightenment, that history is a line, right? Because before that, everybody understands, or everybody, by everybody I mean, you know, certain cultures in the West, and but many cultures in the East as well, have the notion that history is a circle. Uh, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, it's like the seasons, things just come around again, that there is no uh, ultimate progress over time. Um, because we we are all kind of in our own private sense making a journey from sin to salvation, and then uh, that's that involves then our resurrection. Like the, it's it, it is a deeply Christian notion, among other things, that history is essentially a circle that involves just kind of decay and bloom and decay and bloom, and it's like a, it's yeah. like any other feature. Ecclesiastes, of nature. right? Yeah, and what what. Um, the turn to the idea that history is a line is a part of the secularization of the idea of progress. It's part of a commitment to 
um, it's part of the Enlightenment commitment to empiricism that inquiry can lead to discovery, which leads to another discovery, which leads to another discovery, that we are getting, we are unveiling yeah. the mysteries of nature yeah. and using our capacity for inquiry to make the world a better and better place. Like in the Panglossian, each day in every way, <laughs> getting better and better and better. Uh, that notion that um, there can be improvement over time is part of a pretty significant commitment to technological change, right? That we we do associate that with, you know, what Carlyle calls the age of machines, you know, an unending chain of machines. Each will be faster. Each will produce more goods. Goods will become cheaper. Um, that the, And that, that 19th century secular idea of progress animates how historians in the 19th century understand the course of American history, of course. I mean, that's yeah. Frederick Jackson Turner's frontier yeah. thesis derives from that notion of progress, right? This right. is, it's, it prefigures the modernization theory that, you know, McLuhan kind of buys yeah. into that, yeah. that we are on a kind of a train and we start at savagery and we end up at civilization. And it's this weird secular notion of technologically driven progress. What happens in American history is that by the end of the 19th century, that's increasingly supplanted by, an, uh, instead of progress, kind of economic growth. Like what we're actually looking for over time and that line is economic growth. And that's how you kind of measure change. So after a while, the, the country that's founded on this commitment to moral progress, I mean the reason the Enlightenment commitment to progress is about – these discoveries will make the world better for more and more people. Yes, it's a moral um, idea. It's a moral idea. Yeah. By the 20th century, it's it's emptied it, of that. It's not yeah. only secularized, but it is just it's really just about commodities. Like people can have more stuff. Like that's that's yeah. what progress becomes. It's monetized. Yeah, and then we get in our weird 21st century this notion of disruption, which is like actually, you know, we mainly have to just blow things up and make new things. Like we'll get rid of. Yeah, I don't know. People buying buying books and will instead have people like read posts online. We'll get rid of magazines and will instead have people who tweet. We'll get rid of music albums and we'll still have Spotify. We'll get rid of taxi services and we'll have Uber. Like that's what disruption is, uh, and that somehow we don't have to ever ask about the consequences because we're so far distant from the idea that progress involves an evaluation of the moral consequences of yeah. a change. At the end, you write an epilogue, and, and uh, do you render a verdict on the success, failure of the American experiment over the last, say, 230 years since the con Constitution? I, I don't, partly because I don't have one, but also because the book really is an invitation to inquiry. Yes. It's also a book that, in my mind... I mean, I'm, I can imagine like high school students reading or, you know, poor kids being forced to read. Uh, and you I, want them to get to I a place. I would hope every member of Congress would read it. <laughs> you want them to get to a place at the end where they can think, well, I wonder what my place is in this experiment. And what are my obligations? And do I believe this experiment needs to be ditched and we need to have a new form of government? Or do I believe in the party system? Or I believe in the form of government, but I think the problem is this. Or like you, I, The idea here is to welcome readers into a conversation about the nature of, of the experiment. And your idea of the, that goes along with your idea of the historian. The historian is not a moralist. The historian, yeah. in yeah. your own words, you, 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 you put it very nicely. I mean, a sayer of sooth, <laughs> <laughs> but, a, but a, a, uh, an investigator. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, I think the person uh, who's asking questions. Yeah, and not a prognosticator. I think yeah. that the role of the historian in our public life is pretty creepy. Honestly, the kind of yeah. political pundit, political commentator, yeah. Yeah. either brought in to like tell a cute little anecdote about yeah. FDR and like then you know leave that leave the stage, or brought in to sort of say, well, I think that Trump's going to win in the mid. You know, he's going to pull in a lot of votes. Like, I, how is that? How these are good people trying to do good work. I don't mean to you know malign individuals who do this kind yeah. of work, but to my mind, that's not actually very helpful to our public life. No. Uh, it doesn't give us a vantage on the past. Doesn't ask people to think about where their responsibilities lie, yeah. and then we end up weirdly with this public life that is about history as just another place to engage in our partisan battles. Like we should pull down the statue of this person. We should erect a statue to this person. Yeah. It really is just partisan politics by proxy. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think that's super helpful either. Again, yeah. like good people trying to figure out how to do yeah. things in the world. I, I'm, I'm compassionate towards that. But I think the, the obligation of the historian is to dive into the historical record and present in a coherent fashion evidence and an argument to a reader who can engage with that argument and dispute it. I mean, history is disputation. Well, you have accomplished that, and, and this is a truly marvelous book. I mean, thank you, Jill Lepore, for speaking with us today about your new book, These Truths, A History of the United States. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a real treat. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.